Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. I'm Ben Yanowitz. And I'm Zach Smerin, hopefully sounding much better now. Today we are joined by Maria. Maria is calling in from Krakow, though originally she is from Dnipro in Ukraine. Maria works in refugee relief for Jewish and non-Jewish Ukrainians in Krakow in partnership with the local Jewish Community Center and with Hillel Polska or Hillel Poland. Maria has been on a few podcasts before, we will link them in the description. But today we will be taking, of course, a diasporist focus on Ukraine and Ukrainian Jews. We will also talk a little bit about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, its global meaning, and about the future of refugees and Jewish life in Ukraine. Also apologies for the one-week delay. We will be back to regularly scheduled uploads next week. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode. Maria, it's great to have you with us. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing? Absolutely. Hello, everyone. My name is Maria Gershkova, and I'm from Dnipro, Ukraine, which is central Ukraine. And I moved to Poland around six years ago to study international politics, international conflicts, which was a lot of fun. And then I started to work for the Jewish community of Krakow in Hillel, Poland, in Hillel, Krakow, helping out Ukrainian Jewish community in Poland. Because since the full-blown war started, a lot of Jewish people moved to Poland. A lot of young Jewish people moved to Poland. So I'm taking care of them, creating programs, making sure that the Jewish life is thriving, Ukrainian Jewish community is thriving here in Poland. So I work for both Krakow and Warsaw. But if anyone contacts me from any city in Poland, I'm very happy to help them out. I've always been very passionate about Jewish Ukrainian culture and being from Dnipro, which is a very Jewish city. Before Holocaust, almost 40% of people were Jewish and being Jewish is, you know, nothing outstanding in Dnipro. And I was raised in this culture. So obviously when I moved to a different country, I wanted to keep up with my identity, with my culture. So this work is very important for me, especially right now when my community need so much support. Wonderful. Thank you for that. So Ukraine has a long Jewish history, and much of it is not really particularly able to be pinned down as specifically Ukrainian Jewish history, because Ukraine is part of that area that was called the Pale of Settlement of the former Russian Empire, including Belarus, Lithuania, Poland, and of course Ukraine. And because of that, it's very difficult to pin down what is Ukrainian Jewish history and what is just broader Ashkenazi Jewish history. And as the borders of Ukraine over the last hundred years have shifted significantly, it's really not easy to say this is the history of Jews in Ukraine as opposed to the history of Jews throughout that whole region. And given that, as with every community, the decision to include or not include someone based on heritage can be somewhat arbitrary. I was wondering how you personally approach the dilemma of the relationship between your Ukrainian identity as well as your Jewish identity and just the relationship between those aspects of who you are. Thank you. I think it's it's a great question because a lot of Jewish people are wondering now, what does it even mean? And I speak to many people who moved from Ukraine when they were kids to the United States, for example, or their parents moved from Ukraine when they were small. So it's even a couple of generations ago, one generation ago. And it really differs. 
how people feel about their identities and their shift. But I found this article, amazing article recently that says that Ukrainian Jewish identity was born with Zelensky because he's this powerful Jewish leader who's also very pro-Ukrainian and oh, very influential. But when it comes to me personally, I feel like this is a unique personal story that a lot of people can relate to at the moment. Before, I thought I'm the only one who was raised in a household, and I'm, okay, I'm 24 now, so I was born in 1999. It's important to outline that. I was born in a household where we respected Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian language, Ukrainian history, and we would always find something that we enjoy, because any country has parts of history that we do not enjoy, that we need to remember, that we need to understand that was not good, what we have done, for example, right? So we were always trying to find some really good things, remembering bad things, trying to find really good things for ourselves. So growing up, I always knew that I'm Ukrainian. It was not even a question. It was never a question for me. And I always knew I'm Jewish. It was never a question for me. So when the war started, I did not have this shift in my identity. I already had it. So I thought I'm a very unique person, you know, because I would ask people and not a lot of people had the same. So when the war started, then again, I found out that thousands of people have the same shift that I had, you know, growing up. And my story is not that unique anymore, actually. And that many people can relate to my experiences of combining these two very different identities. So I would say this is a new thing. It's definitely a modern thing. And if I ask someone who is older than me, they might not relate to my experience because growing up in the 90s, for example, let's say in the 90s, Ukraine was not the, the best experience, especially for Jewish people. Let's face this. This is a rough truth that we need to face. But growing up for me in 1999 to this day was enjoyable experience. And my childhood was quite amazing where I could be this and that at the same time and it was enjoyable and absolutely outstanding so i would just say this is about unique stories and about context of the time this is very important here and i am telling my story that is unfortunately not as unique anymore but more and more people can actually relate to this new definition of what does it mean to be ukrainian and jewish so it's an ongoing process. That would be my answer. Yeah, thank you. Because for my family, I was told as a young kid that like, oh, my family is Russian Jewish. And that's something I kind of accepted uncritically for years. And then in more recent years, I've like looked into the history and it turns out actually almost none of them are from modern Russia, like Poland, Lithuania, Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, but no actual Russian at all. So it's very interesting to think about how we as Jews in diaspora really can have a relationship to the places our ancestors came from. Well, also, it's not going to be anything like your identity, which is based on the fact that Ukraine is where you grew up. And it is very different from someone who might be living in the US or anywhere else and who has roots there. But it's very different as for you. And I think it's very interesting that it's something that is emerging over time, because a lot of people kind of take identities, especially national identities or cultural identities as stagnant. But I think pointing to how emergent they can be is a really enlightening and insightful piece of information. So thank you. If I could also add one thing that I think is crucial here, whenever people talk about that they're, for example, let's say Russian Jewish, but they came from the territory that is now, for example, Belarus or Ukraine, it's very important to say that I personally find it incorrect to say that you're Russian Jewish. But in my personal opinion, I can tell why. Because the culture that these people, Jewish people lived in, really influenced our culture, really influenced what we made, what kind of songs we made, what languages we probably spoke. 
let's not go too far. My great-grandpa, Joseph, he spoke Ukrainian. He would go outside on the street, so they would speak Yiddish, they would speak Ukrainian. So saying that he is Russian Jewish would be incorrect for me personally. But obviously, I'm not a historian, so I can't really bring you this valuable argument in this very moment, but just based on my personal story. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think a lot of people look at a map and say, oh, that was Russia at the time, so it's Russia. But like, of course, it's a whole lot more complicated than that. Maria, you mentioned in one of the previous podcasts, which we are going to give a shout out to, you've been on two podcasts, I have uh, pages full of notes uh, on them, they were both very interesting, we're going to link them. One of them was The Jews Are Tired, that is from uh, Minneapolis, if I'm not mistaken. And one thing that you said there, and in fact, the put in the title of their podcast was my homeland is Ukraine and specifically the full quote was each Jewish person decides whatever their homeland is for me my homeland is Ukraine as much as I adore and love and respect Israel and I have a big family there my homeland is Ukraine this is not a question for me and I think this is very interesting for many reasons first of all I'm not sure if you're aware of the slogan of the general Jewish labor bund from 1917 which I have with me here in the form of a sticker which looks like this Dorten, wo mir leben, dort is unser Land. Um, you must uh, forgive my Yiddish is still um, at quite a beginner level. And that is, wherever we live, that's our homeland. Uh, this actually comes from a 1917 Ukrainian general election poster of the Bund that was published in Kiev at the time. But I wanted to ask you, how do you approach uh, this clash of ideas that certainly uh, we believe that the idea that Israel is the only place where Jewish cultural and communal fulfillment can take place, uh, not necessarily by the way in which the current government exists, but generally the idea that Jews need their own state either to exist in, to feel truly Jewish, or to be somehow very closely connected to it. We're opposed uh, to that idea largely because we believe that Jewish culture and communal fulfillment can take place wherever Jewish communities exist around the world, including in the diaspora. And the Ukrainian case is quite unique right now because you can see that identity really strengthening itself of local pride in response to the Russian invasion. But I want to pick your thoughts about this personally, because you do say that you have family in Israel, you do say that you are connected to it, but how are you approaching this dichotomy? Are you able to uh, find a place where you're comfortable in? Thank you. This is a truly timeless question. I think each generation of Jewish people once asked that question to themselves. So I'll try to answer in my own context of 21st century Ukrainian Jew. When my family moved to Israel, it was tough times in the city that we are from. There was no jobs. People just want to leave after Holocaust. They just didn't want to have anything, anything to do with that city and with this country. And there was a big inflation. People suffered. And the fact that they moved to Israel and had a better life and they could travel to countries they could never travel before. Like my auntie, she traveled to China and to Australia. And, you know, living in a Soviet Union, this was absolutely insane, the life she had in Israel and the opportunities that she had in Israel. So I, you know, truly support them and understand the context and understand why they did that. And maybe if I were at that very time, at that very place, I would probably do the same, move to a different country and specifically to Israel because they could finally be Jewish after being silent, after Soviet Union that completely destroyed their identity, completely destroyed who they were. So obviously they wanted to move somewhere where not only they could live freely, but could be fully Jewish and never run around was Jewish as well. I completely understand that. However, my context is different, which is fine because it's a completely different time now. What the identity we created now, this Ukrainian Jewish identity is very unique. And whenever I go to Israel, I do not feel like my identity is supported there. 
And now we're raising, you know, not very happy topics here. And I'm following a lot of organizations that are Ukrainian-Israel organizations that care for Ukrainian Jewish communities in Israel. And the amount of discrimination that these people face for just speaking Ukrainian or for, I don't know, having their flag on the balcony is completely outrageous. The fact that I have to read it every day on Facebook, it's outrageous. And hear it from my friends. I'm really disappointed. And I know it's harsh words, but that's the context that I live in at this very moment. And this is how I feel at this very moment. So I do not see myself living there in Israel and be free as a Ukrainian Jewish person. Maybe if I was a different Jewish person, you know, there's a lot of us in here, I would feel like actually fit this place perfectly 100%. But now I've got to fight for my country and for my values and for identity that we've created that is very young and vulnerable and that we really have to cherish at this very moment because it can break any second um, under Russian propaganda and the fact that, you know, people are dying every day. And when people die, culture dies with them. And a lot of Jewish people already died fighting for Ukraine and protecting in Ukraine. So I gotta cherish it and I gotta respect it. And I do not see Israel as a place where it can be supported at this very moment. It sounds horrible when I think about it because Israel is the place for Jewish people. Uh, but this is how I feel at the moment. Maybe I'm emotional. Maybe in 20 years we'll talk again and I say, hey, I've changed. But this is what it is at this very moment. So I feel that like Ukraine is my only home uh, where I can be truly myself. And Poland, surprisingly. Poland is also my home now. I do think it's important to note that Israel does claim to be the Jewish state, but like when you really dig into what that means, the fact is there is not like one Jewishness. There are so, so many Jewishnesses, and I think you really pointed to that because in Ukraine and Poland, you're able to really embrace this Ukrainian Jewish identity. But if you were in Israel, you do have a lot of Russian Jews as well, which I think might be part of why there is so much tension there because we're all Jewish, yeah. But of course, that's like just the surface and you really dig deeper there's a whole lot of competing claims and histories that have a lot of contradictions between them and i can totally see why that would make it feel like you can't really embrace that full part of who you are and in that way really flattens your identity into just jewish and that is that's frankly part of why i'd say we are diasporist because in a lot of ways there's a diaspora negationist element of zionism that really seeks to flatten judaism into a single homogenous identity and a huge amount of culture and history is lost when you try to do that i actually agree with you about this whenever i think about myself my core is a jew and diaspora that's how i see myself me too maybe it will change there's two things that i wanted just to add a little bit on one of them is the idea of the ideological and the pragmatic Aliyah, which a lot of the time when we're relatively comfortable, we're talking about these ideas from an ideological perspective, you know, where should Jews be allowed to live? Where do we want to live? And why? And so on? How does that connect to our identity? But the truth is, is just like you said, a lot of people did not have that choice when they were stuck in displaced person camps in Germany, or they were stuck on Cyprus after the Second World War, or if they were fleeing pogroms from Iraq or Egypt in the periods after that, or from the Soviet Union, or stuck in Ethiopia during the Civil War. They did not have that choice of, you know, do I want to leave? Uh, and where do I want to leave to? And I think that's very important to highlight. And also, in connection to that, what you said about not being able to speak Ukrainian, because that's treated as an outside identity, and it's connected to the Russian identity. That's also something a lot of speakers from Middle Eastern countries who spoke Arabic in the years following Israeli independence were not able to speak Arabic, because that was treated as the language of the fifth column, or speakers of Yiddish, because that was treated as the 
language of the old shtetl and the old Jews. And the second thing I wanted to say is about not feeling at home. My dad travelled to Israel in 1967 as a volunteer on day two of the Six Day War. He was on a kibbutz, he was a farmhand in the place of those who were drafted into the army, and he said that as someone who grew up in East London, that the place didn't feel very Jewish to him, which is an interesting, um, an interesting thing to say about Israel. And there was a recent book that came out called Resurrecting the Jew by Genevieve Zubczycki, which is about Jewish identity and existence in Poland. And in one of the chapters there, she follows a group of Polish Jews who go on birthright. And one of the reactions that she gets from the participants of the trip, it's a bit more nuanced than this, of course, but this is one that I just remembered, is that one of the participants did not feel like the trip connect much to them by stating, after all, I'm not American. So there's very much this connection to what Jewish identity is and what diaspora is. I wanted to move on because there's a lot of very interesting subjects here about Ukraine Jewish identity. And I wanted to talk a little bit about reckoning with the past and also how it connects to the Polish Jewish context. When it comes to within Ukrainian identity, you can look at, you know, the Chmielnitsky uprising caused the death of a lot of Jews. The Chmielnitsky is one of the earliest national heroes of Ukraine, period of Simeon Petlura, who, whilst himself might have not been responsible for pogroms in the early 1920s, troops under him were, or whether we talk about collaboration during the Second World War. So that's one aspect of it. And then the second aspect of it, I think that's also quite interesting, is how it's remembered today, not from the perspective of the people that supported what happened to Ukraine's Jews, but about how a lot of that memory seems to be erased. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. I looked on the Dnipro memorial to the victims of the Holocaust, and it doesn't mention Jews. And that's something that I think is very interesting when it comes to the Polish context as well, because in the town where I am from, and this is not a unique case, this is something that's very, very common in Poland. In the town where I am from, there used to be a sub camp of Auschwitz, which had primarily Hungarian Jews. And on the memorial that was erected in the 1970s and was restored a few years ago, it doesn't say anything about victims being Jews, and it just says, you know, to the victims who died for the fatherland, which is completely inappropriate, and it's one part of the erasure that the Polish government, and to a certain extent Polish society, participates in to truly understand the Holocaust. And as someone who very strongly and ideologically believes in the right of Poland's Jews to live wherever they want to live and build communities and be strong. But as simple as sometimes it would be to, you know, just, oh, it happened so long ago, or that we have to move forward at some point, I do believe that there is a need to have a reckoning of some kind with the history of the country that you're in, because only then, as one of my great or not so great authorities, Pope John Paul II stated, sorry, Saint John Paul II, the truth will set you free, right? It is only when we confronted this in some way and not if the law of cases in Poland have taken place and continue to take place that we can truly work towards uh, fulfilling Jewish cultural and communal life. So how do you approach this in the Ukrainian context? It might be that there are significant differences that I'm not aware of, but I just saw on the Wikipedia that the Dnipro memorial does not mention Jews as victims. So I think this might be one of the most popular questions people usually ask me because they hear horrible things about anti-Semitism and about Ukraine's past. I think it's a pretty valid, it's a pretty good question because we live in this every day. So basically I would tell how it's a work in progress. It's not an excuse, but we're definitely a very young country. There's still a lot of things that are in progress at this very moment. But let me tell you some good facts. 
that are happening in this very moment. We have a group of people, these are Jewish people, primarily from Kiev and Dnipro and Jewish organizations that take care of the monuments that we had during the Soviet Union, where Soviet authorities tried to erase what was happening during the Holocaust or silent generations. They created my father who doesn't want to talk about Holocaust whatsoever. So how to work with the silent generation and the monuments that Soviet Union produced, you just go find money, remove it and put a different one. But for that, you got to contact uh, the local authorities and get the permission. This process is ongoing. And since Ukraine is the biggest country in Europe, we still have this monument, some of them that needs to be removed and replaced and redone. But the amount of monuments we have already redone is enormous actually because there's this one person his name is Vitaly Khmozin and he is actually remaking these monuments together with Jewish organizations of Ukraine he travels all around and they're fixing what needed to be fixed many years ago so this is a work in progress when it comes to monuments when it comes to national heroes some of the national heroes that we have I don't think actually people even know much about them which is pretty wild. I could also see the situation in the United States where people would have some national hero or people used to have Columbus Day without even knowing what Columbus has done or who is this person. So people still need a lot of education on this matter. That's all I need to say at this very moment because if you ask people about what did Khmelitsky even did for Ukraine itself, not a lot of people would actually tell you a lot of details about his biography or even if you, okay, Jewish context on the side for a second, what he did for Ukraine, not a lot of people would tell you this either. So this is definitely an educational problem that we have to face in schools. It all starts from school. Because if you don't really learn these things in school, then you're going to go and vote who's your favorite national hero is going to be Khmelnytsky. When you did have a lot of great people who supported Jewish people and were Ukrainian. Let's start with Taras Shevchenko. Recently, I read a book about Jewish people in Ukrainian literature. And Taras Shevchenko is basically the father of Ukrainian literature, the fighter against the Russian rule who used to be a slave to Russian people. And then he was always fighting for independence of Ukraine. And he wrote in Ukrainian a lot of beautiful poems. He was a big uh, Jewish activist, actually. A couple centuries ago for that time, it was insane. But he was. How about making Taras Shevchenko a national hero? Well, he is, actually. Um, and we have a lot of monuments of Taras Shevchenko all over the country. Obviously, I'm not saying that if we have some people, we should close our eyes on the other people. But what I'm saying is we definitely need more education in our schools, in our minds. And it, it is happening because with the war coming to our country, people started to actually take a look at their history and take a look at the minorities that we have and learn more about Crimean Tatars, about Jewish people, about, let's say, Armenian people, etc., etc. So this is an educational problem, but we're working on it. And people like me, this is our job to tell why is it wrong. It's going to be a harsh truth. We're going to sit down and talk and people are going to probably disagree with me and say that it is Russian propaganda and a lot of things in our country and historical facts were and is Russian propaganda. But there are some tough moments that we're going to face ourselves as a nation, sit down and decide it because it's our matter, it's Ukrainian matter, it's between Ukrainian people and we're going to sit down and decide it together. We're young and we still have some time. That's my approach. Because I used to be pretty sad about it. I used to be pretty sad about, oh, how people ignore a lot of matters connected to Jewish people. But then I actually started to talk to a lot of people. And Ukrainians are open for a dialogue. They're open to learn. They're open to share and change right now. 
it's a great moment to just be on this wave, educate people, talk to people. I started to be a believer in a dialogue. That's how I see this matter being resolved. I want people to sit down and understand what Jewish people went through in this country. And then I want to hear what they went through as Ukrainians, for example, in this country. Okay, that's what I want to have. Yeah, I think that's really, I'm really glad you pointed to education and the need to really confront some of these histories. I mean, I have a Ukrainian flatmate where I'm living now, and she's from Lviv. And in Lviv, they really, really uphold Stepan Bandera as a national hero. For those that might not know, Stepan Bandera was a virulent anti-Semite, a fascist, essentially. But when I asked her about why you could uphold someone like that, all she really knew about him was that he fought the Soviets. And it didn't really matter that he fought alongside, literally, the Nazis. But when you have a history of a country like Ukraine, which has had so much, and the national history during the 20th century, I mean, you don't need to be told, (laughs) there's a lot of events that are very complex, and there's not such an easy black and white of good and bad often. And especially when you want to have a national identity, you use these national histories in order to help create that national identity, in order to able show that, oh, we have a shared history, except... As you've really pointing, like there really is these tensions. And I think it's really important to have these dialogues because otherwise you're not going to actually be able to go through this. And it's important to really stare this truth in the face and recognize that, yeah, there is this ethno-nationalist element within Ukrainian nationalism, just as in every nationalism. That's why I'm rather anti-nationalist. But you're not going to be able to solve it unless you're actually having those conversations because it's not like people are upholding these people because they're fascists and anti-Semites. It's because they don't really know any better and it just is part of the national story and that's something that they're taught in schools and they can really identify with. And I think it's really important to include Jewish people who really can show that actually Jews have been a part of the Ukrainian history for centuries and you can't tell the story of Ukraine without its Jews. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree here. I would consider myself a nationalist, which would probably sound to a lot of people like, why would you be that? But the work came to my country in 2014, and since then, we've been helping and we're fighting. A lot of my friends died. So for me, it's definitely a personal question. And there are a lot of people in Ukrainian history who fought for Jewish people who are not anti-Semites. But I think this is our job to educate people who these people were and make them our new national heroes. How about that? That's uh, some plan, five-year plan. <laughs> a lot of these conversations, I think it's interesting, despite, of course, the tragedy of, of war and invasion, and this is in no way, you know, to be happy about the idea that it take place, but it seems to, in the Ukrainian context, have really created this kind of popular mobilization that is able to really address some important issues about what it means to be Ukrainian, what does it mean to live in Ukraine, and expedited this process. And it's something that I encountered in an interview with one of the leaders of the Miners' Union in Kriviri, which I reference in a different interview, which is interesting because, again, I'm going to reference the Polish context. Back in the late 1980s and 1990s, Poland was an independent nation nominally, but obviously after the Second World War, it was a puppet government controlled by the Soviet Union. And so when Poland was able to go through changes to create a liberal democratic government and get rid of Soviet influence, there was a lot of hesitation initially among some quarters of trying to talk about aspects that might create controversies abroad because it was viewed as having a bad image on Polish society. The idea was, yes, maybe bad things happened to Jews in the past. Some Poles did bad things too or could have done better. But we should not talk about this, especially abroad, because we are just showing how good we are on the international stage. And this is throwing a wrench 
into that. This is a tradition that dates at least back to the 18th century, that whatever bad happens in Poland, at the very least, we don't talk about it abroad. We don't carry out our dirty laundry, no matter how bad it might be. So when it comes to this matter, it's very important to actually go and talk about this truth because we can see on an example of our neighbor Russia what happens to a country when you actually don't talk about the bad things that you're doing. This is a way to nowhere. This is a fact, period. If you're in denial about things that you have done, you do not have a future as a country, as a nation, because it's built on lie. And people are going to find out this lie one day or another. And, you know, your castle is going to break down. This is how I see it. So we really have to be honest with ourselves. I know it's tough. And I can see, because I live in Poland, it's tough for Polish people as well. And I understand it. And I'm empathetic because it is probably tough for me to also talk about, you know, bad things, let's say, Jewish people have done. Obviously, I'm not whitewashing the things that people has done during the Holocaust here. But I also understand that this younger generations, they do not know how to talk about it, how to approach the topic, how to be empathetic to Jewish communities and respectful to Jewish communities. I am coming back to this question of education then again. This is a right education, which... I do not even see in, let's say, Germany, because one of my cousins moved there and she told about the Holocaust education that you have in Germany. And I'm not sure if it works with kids as well as people think it does. She would tell me that she would go to, let's say, Auschwitz on a tour with her German classmates and they would not take seriously this tour whatsoever. So we're doing something wrong with this education. And we as Jewish communities actually also understand how we can teach others how to talk about this. We want, you know, to list these clear expectations, what we want from these people, you know, what we want them to acknowledge and do. And this is also on us. This is our work as well. This is my personal opinion when it comes to Ukrainian context. And that's what I do, you know. I also want people to understand that I know it's very hard for them, but we have to talk about it. And these are the things that should be done. One, two, three, four, five, right? You got to understand exactly what happened. Be clear about it. Do not cover it up. Uh, learn more about Jewish people. Be respectful. And I think we can move from there. This is like base. On the question of education and especially about Ukrainian Jewish identity and such, I was wondering if this is something that you confront in your work, because I know you do a lot of community building and programming type stuff. I was wondering if this is something you yeah. engage with in it, as well as beyond that, if you're doing a lot of stuff with Ukrainian Jews, have you been learning and doing stuff so that after the war and you're able to go back to Ukraine, if that is something you'd be able to do um, with the broader Ukrainian community? Yes. So I think it's very important to mention the context. So I'm here in Krakow. Krakow is the hub for Ukrainian culture of people abroad in Europe, in my opinion. I do not see any other city in Europe that does as much as Krakow for this diaspora. This diaspora includes Jewish people as well. They're very present in this cultural center. And we work closely with them, which also shows people that Ukrainian culture is not only what we think in a classical sense of it, but it's also Crimean Tatar culture. It's also Jewish culture. It's Azerbaijani culture, right? It's all the minorities of Ukraine. That's number one. Number two would be one great example of how you can teach kids about Jewish people. I worked for a refugee winter camp for Ukrainian and Jewish kids 
who were refugees in Warsaw and Hilo Poland was taking part in this preparation and just helping out a little bit here. And I was teaching them English and we would also make candles and I would tell them what a Shabbat, for example. This is a nice way to educate these little kids about basics. And they can actually ask you questions and they know the Jewish people are not some, you know, scary, disconnected community that we're neighbors, we're fine. And there were Armenian kids there and there were Ukrainian kids and Jewish kids there. Kids could learn. So I think it's one of the simple, very, very simple examples of what education should look like in the future. But answering your question, yes, I see myself working in Ukraine and changing it. For now, I do not understand how I'm going to do it, but this is definitely one of my plans. But I think I should educate myself more before doing that. I should go and study, for example, Jewish studies before or working with communities before because I'm still very young. And all I, all I learned in the university was wars and conflicts. So I don't know if I can build community out of it. Thank you. I, I really wanted to ask that because I think your job is a very interesting one that I feel like you do get so much experience just from engaging with so many Ukrainian Jews in the Polish situation that I feel like your experience is very enlightening and could be used very very helpfully to help educate people. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. So this is a little section that I called Ben's controversial questions. Because uh, <laughs> I, I, I think there are a lot of questions that people on the left are really struggling with, especially in the West, where people are really disconnected from this, even more so in the global South, because people have lots of different views of the US, NATO, and just the role of empire in the world. So many people in the global South, and to a lesser extent in what could broadly be conceived of as the West or the global North, many people might argue that Russia's war against Ukraine has caused the country to become a proxy for US and NATO power. While many variations of this argument completely strip Ukrainians of their agency, which is why I'm really hesitant to even bring this up, in many ways they can parrot the Kremlin line. There is some truth as to the role that NATO and the US and the West in general has played a really significant role in supplying material, moral, logistical support for the Ukrainian military. While we hope that Ukraine can win this war very soon, we also must understand the immense loss of life and incredible risk of further escalation that a prolonged war can bring, especially one between nuclear powers. As the United States, the UK, and other NATO powers have played a role in prolonging and expanding this war, do you think there is any truth to the belief that Ukraine has become a proxy in this new Cold War between the US, NATO, Israel, Japan, Australia on one hand, and Russia, China, and other more autocratic powers on the other? This is definitely a question that I got a lot when I was in New York. That's all I can say. That's to start with. Secondly, Ukraine is not a proxy. That's 1000% because things are clear. I understand that a lot of people are out of context because they live far away or they do not understand why even people follow the hashtag, for example, Arm Ukraine. And I met a lot of Jewish people with even Ukrainian background who live in the United States, especially. Somehow it's United States based opinion, from my personal experience, who do not understand that by arming Ukraine, you actually do not prolong war. Very important number one fact. People think that if U.S. or NATO stops giving arms to Ukraine that war's gonna end. It's not gonna end. Just more people gonna die. This is how it works, unfortunately. I wish we lived, you know, in a perfect world where it's black and white thing happening because a lot of people see war as two groups of people in a field just fighting against each other. But it's not like this anymore. Cities getting bombed, uh, civilians getting killed, um, and we see it on daily. So we need arms. To prevent death of civilians and prevent the death of our army who decided to protect our country. 
for a lot of people who live, um, well, I cannot assume the backgrounds of these people, obviously. Maybe some of them have military experience. Maybe some of them do not. But I think it's not the place of these people to decide what is better for us if we clearly state what we need. You know, 50% of Ukraine was like, oh, I do not need any arms. We're proxy and half was like, arm Ukraine now. No, we're all very united in what we need. And we're all very united from the very start in what we need. So that should be a very big green flag for people who are in doubt about what side to choose. Just listen to Ukrainian people. That's the side you should choose. Listen to a person who is in trouble and who is asking for help. And what is this help exactly? If I could put it in basic, you know, words that any civilian could understand. Listen to the side that is suffering. And, you know, that's what any good person should do. Ukraine is definitely not a proxy. This is very Russian propaganda narrative, unfortunately. I hope these people can understand where it's coming from. But even arms to Ukraine does not prolong the war. I think it's also crucial to understand. This is just incorrect from a point of view of military conflicts. You do not prolong a war by giving people arms. This is just not how it works. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Yeah, just to play devil's advocate, a lot of people would say it's not really up to Ukrainians whether or not they can become a proxy because the whole idea of a proxy is that it's something that's often foisted onto communities or countries or groups by the way the logistics work and because from the war planning room in Washington or wherever it is with NATO, um, from that perspective, yeah. This sounds like conspiracy theory to me, you know? Just like, oh, we don't decide, like, this Jewish people rule the world somewhere out there. This kind of vibe in there. I understand where this is coming from, but if you say that it's not up for Ukrainians to choose if they're a proxy, this is direct discrimination of Ukrainians. Because you assume that Ukrainians do not have a power in their own government, which is completely wrong, because if we see 2014, Ukrainians not only have a full control of their government, they chose it. They did not like the president. They basically got him out of the place where he sat. He had to run. All of his guys had to run. They would make Molotov cocktails. They got him out. And assuming that after that, these people do not control their own government, this is you thinking that you're better than them, in my opinion. This is how I see it. That you're smarter than this Ukrainian. So they don't understand, you know, they're so young. We understand. Moreover, we fought for what we understand. Yeah, yeah, it definitely can be very paternalistic. I think that's a really good point. I, I, it's just that a lot of people might say that like it's because you have geopolitical nerds that are in power in certain areas, seeing it like a chessboard, and therefore just seeing this broader new Cold War world that's being emergent for the last few years. Just for a little reference, I did my undergraduate dissertation on the U.S. media's view of the Guatemalan Revolution, which is from 1944 to 54. And one of the arguments I engaged with was the role that the Korean War played in catalyzing the Cold War from a Eurasian conflict between the USSR and the US, and it catalyzed it into a global phenomenon which really came to define global political paradigms everywhere. And in that process of writing it, the war in Ukraine started, and I really came to start to see the war in Ukraine as analogous to the war in Korea. The only reason I bring it up is because in that war in Korea, you do have South Korea. I mean, it was literally created by the U.S., so of course, it's a very different situation. But you do have South Korea being a proxy. So I was just sort of thinking from the perspective of those in the West, they might see it that way. And I was curious to have your perspective on that. Yeah, absolutely, Ben. I think we always want to, you know, put a bigger picture out there and understand maybe there are some patterns, and I completely get it, but people should really learn about the context because it's completely different. Moreover, let's take 2014 when Russia attacked us first time 
time and they took Crimea. U.S. could have done much more at that time and they didn't. If we are such a proxy, why didn't they start war back then? And Russia provoked, provoked Ukraine for many, many times. I hate saying this word provoked, but that exactly what happened, unfortunately. And we were living in fear daily. The horrible war has started because of Russian invasion 2014. And some might say this could be the moment, you know, but it wasn't. So I truly recommend people watching this amazing documentary on Netflix, Winter on Fire, about the Ukrainian revolution in 2014. It's going to give them more context, make them understand the situation, understand what is happening, why is it happening, and also just read the history of Ukrainian-Russian relations for many centuries, actually last seven centuries. And you're going to find that this is not the first time Russia attacked us. And there was even before U.S. existed as a country, we had wars between each other and Russia always wanted to take us over. It's not like it only started, you know, a year ago. Of course. Thank you so much. Yeah, personally, I've really enjoyed, uh, there's a YouTuber called Sarcasmatron, which it's not as prestigious as documentary. But I think he does very good analyses about the history of the conflict all the way going back to the 1990s. And it really is interesting the way that he describes that in 2014, the Russians had so many opportunities to de-escalate. And after the takeover by separatists in Slovyansk, they had the possibility of just stating that they were not able to convince enough people in eastern Ukraine to separate from Russia. It did not succeed. They could just back out. They could just withdraw. And it just kept, they had these off ramps, exits off this road that eventually led to the Russian army being placed in such a situation that they had no other choice but to invade completely out of their own volition. It is interesting to to talk about the invasion. I follow it every day. As we are recording this, there does seem to be some kind of local counteroffensive around Bakhmut. We are wishing them all the success. Seeing what's happening on all the mill blogger Russian telegram channels, they do t- seem to be uh, shitting their pants, <laughs> which is... No, I'm, I'm serious. There seems to be complete panic from what is happening from a local counteroffensive. You'll see what, what happens happens when the actual big thing launches. As much as that is interesting, there is one final question I wanted to ask about Ukrainian refugees. There was a lot of outpouring and support in Poland for refugees, which is something that our government likes to boast about, even though a large part of it, and I would say the majority of it, was taken in by individual families or NGOs organizing. And a lot of the things that the government uh, was supposed to be helping about, including quick possibility to get national identification, the PESEL number has been quite difficult. But I wanted to talk a little bit about what the situation is right now, as of May 2023, and what the situation is going to look like, do you think, in the next six months. And the reason why I say that is that Poland's coming up for a general election in October 2023. And back in March of last year, I wrote an article for the JCC Communal Bulletin. One of the points that I made then was that I don't believe that the Polish government, which has always been very xenophobic and anti-refugee, will continue its positive or or not negative policy towards Ukrainian refugees for that long. And especially if faced with a situation where it might lose the general election and it's going to try to get either votes off the far right or try and cozy up with the far right. By the far right, I mean the Confederacja. And that's coming up soon. That situation seems to be likely the general election. It seems like it's going to be very close. And the special legislation that was written in March 2022 was for a period of 18 months. 
So that runs about a month, two months before the election. If law and justice is in a situation where they want to get support from the far right, there might be some kind of situation where they get rid of that. There's already been certain situations like with the grain deal, where the government just seems to have, you know, for two days decided that they were blocking, then they decided again. It was causing a lot of confusion. But it seems like they could be up to something because I believe that the current government will stop at almost nothing to, to try and keep power. And if that means throwing Ukrainian refugees under the bus, then those are my fears. So I'm wondering what your opinion is on it now. How are things generally going on? And what do you think the situation is going to be like in the next few months? Thank you for your question. Before I start, I want to share that things that Polish people have done for Ukrainians, I've never seen anything like that in my entire life. And probably I will never be able to not only forget, but stop talking about it. Because the amount of kindness, humanity that I saw, I never expected anything like this. And from the first days of Russian invasion, when millions of Ukrainians went through Krakow, millions of them, the amount of help from Polish people that were there, and they did not wait for any thank you. They were just there because they were. I approached one of the people who was helping me out on the train station and asked him, why are you doing this? And he said, because I have three daughters. And if they would be in the situation, I would want someone to help. And I think this is the right thing to do. If I don't do this, I will not be able to look them in the eyes when they grow up. And the amount of this kind of dialogues and speeches that we had with Polish people in the Russian invasion is enormous. I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen Ukrainians and Polish people so united because I lived here for six years. And obviously, even though we truly understand each other in a lot of aspects, and I would say that 21st century is a century of great friendship between Poland and Ukraine, I've never seen such a unity. And there's no need for words when we're in the same room. People understand exactly how you feel, what is going on. You do not need to explain to them as, for example, people from different continent or even, I would say, France or, or Germany. Germans do not understand from my personal experience, right? Both people understand exactly what is happening. They're ready to help. They never wait for any thank you. What they've done is phenomenal. And when the Nobel Prize was given out, I was so disappointed who they gave it to because all the Ukrainians I knew was hoping that Polish people gonna receive Nobel prize for peace. And when they didn't, I cried. I thought that this is one of the most unfair things I've seen. And moving on from me being emotional, <laughs> uh, I would say that I will be forever grateful for what Polish people have done for my people. If I ever have kids, they will grow up knowing the stories. And this is a new chapter for Ukrainian-Polish relationship, that's for sure. Also, when it comes to government, obviously living in Poland, I do have my problems with the current government, obviously, as each and every young person, I think we would all agree here. And I probably wouldn't vote for that government when the elections were, I actually was not on their side, 100%. But the rhetorics of the current government and the help that they provide to Ukraine is enormous. Each and every speech of Andrzej Duda about Ukraine is phenomenal. It be written down in a historical book. This is my opinion. It's phenomenal. I do not know any other country that supports Ukraine as much as Poland. So even if the government changes in October, maybe I live in a dream, but I feel like because such a big support comes from people, I just do not believe it's just gonna dramatically change. I just do not think so. But that's just my opinion based on what I see daily at work. Obviously, there's less and less refugees at the moment, but we do not know how the war is going to progress, what Russia is going to do next. 
we do not know what the refugee situation is going to be. But for now, it's gradually declining the amount of refugees. A lot of people want to go home. They're very thankful to Poland, but they just want to go home and just live their life. From one point of view, this is very dangerous and very bad because they don't come to safe cities. The cities get bombed on daily basis. On the other side of things, this is really good because people going to go back home, find jobs, work, and because here, well, a lot of people do not have these jobs. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is people who already settled, found jobs, learned the language, and live a good life here. There's a lot of people like that, and they truly appreciate Poland, very thankful for it. And taking into consideration how tough this refugee relief process has been, because, okay, we knew that Russian troops are near the border, we knew that there's like 150,000 of them, but no one expected that next month, like March, there are going to be 2 million people on the border. I don't think Poland was ready for that. I don't think any country on the border with Ukraine was ready for that. And what they have done, you know, take into consideration the situation was phenomenal. This refugee relief work was phenomenal because not only the government, you know, did some things, but regular people did the majority of the things. They just opened their houses for Ukrainians. And then later on, there was a program from the government that they would pay money for Polish people who are hosting Ukrainians, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. But uh, this humanity that we saw, I think if situation is going to get worse, we're going to see that humanity again, because it was not something that the government did. It was not some kind of program. It was just regular people helping out. So I think they will continue helping. Obviously, a lot of people are tired and understand that. And that's a phenomenon that we all understand and know. People get tired of helping. People get tired of refugees. I understand that. This is a harsh fact we got to face. But there's a big amount of Polish people who will never get tired. And I can see that in their eyes going to work every day. They will never get tired of helping. <laughs> uh, whatever you do to them. Uh, they're fighters. They're fighters for Ukrainians. And this will never change. Whatever the government is going to be. Polish people are phenomenal. And the change of the government will never change it. That's my idealistic opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I hope that you are right. Part of that hesitation or skepticism for me comes from originally the law and justice government came to power in 2015, specifically in opposition to the Syrian refugee crisis, as it was considered. And there we had a situation where the Polish government said that we can absolutely not take in 7,000 people, which sounds like a sick joke. It was a sick joke then. Poland had taken in tens of thousands of Chechens in the 1990s without any problems, but 7,000 people that were already vetted in. I'm sure you're aware of the situation that has been taking place at the Belarusian border with refugees that have been caught in this political power play between Lukashenko and the Polish government. And there, there have been cases of migrants going on prolonged hunger strikes in refugee centers. We're talking mainly about people from the Middle East. And I can just completely see the Polish government not maybe you know right away saying we don't want Ukrainians here but starting off as them sending a message to the TV saying you know oh they're getting a bit too uppity or they're leeching off and just that propaganda machine turning I hope that I am wrong for the sake of everyone but especially for the sake of Ukrainian refugees Maria it's been an incredible pleasure talking to you I think for both of us if you have any final words we'll leave this final space for you thank you so much for this interview the questions were great I think everyone we be very interested in finding out the answers. My last words would be take a look at how amazing Polish people and Ukrainian people are doing together. Just let it sink for a moment because we haven't had that in centuries. That's it. Wow. Thank you so much. 
enjoy enjoy what you see <laughs> thank you so much maria i think it really does say so much just about the prospects for intercultural solidarity and of course zach brought up something that really raises the limits of it but you've really inspired me and really made me so hopeful for the prospects for humanity and the fact that people do care for each other and really can be there for each other and i really hope that just gives us a little bit of a hint of the world to come and the better world that we will all help bring about in the coming years. So thank you so much for joining us today, Maria. It's been truly a pleasure.